So we're in the second week of our series on prayer. And as I mentioned last week, it is a series that's based on one of our core values, uh, prayer. Our five core values are pray, give, invite, mentor, serve. Pray, give, invite, mentor, and serve. Say it with me. Pray, give, invite, mentor, serve. One more time. Pray, give, invite, mentor, serve. That we want to be a congregation where those characteristics, those values are are, are things that we are that are part of our discipleship process. They're things that we are working. We want a congregation that is totally and completely dependent upon God, that is turning to God in prayer. We want a congregation that is generous, not just with their finances, but with their time and their energy and their emotions and their homes and all of that. We want folks that are generous folks. We want folks who are invitational, not just inviting people to church, but inviting people into your life, inviting people into your relationships, inviting people into your homes, like spending time with other folks, inviting, invitational. We want people that are mentoring the next generation, that are recognizing that God has a future in store for the church, and part of that is realized by pouring into the next generation. And we want a congregation that is filled with servants, people who are using their gifts and talents and passions and abilities to serve God and to advance the kingdom in all kinds of exciting ways. And at the beginning of this year, I wanted to focus on the core value of prayer. And I didn't just want, as I mentioned last week, I didn't just want to preach on prayer. I wanted to give you some practical handles that might be helpful to you in your own prayer life. And so each week we're interviewing one of our pastors just to kind of see, let them share a little bit about their own prayer life with us. And last week we interviewed Kathleen Achi, uh, our pastor of uh, community care, and, and I got so much great response from folks that saying that was just so helpful. And today uh, we're interviewing Josh Falk. Josh is our pastor of discipleship and engagement, and uh, I wanted Josh to come up and just share a little bit about prayer life and just his own experience. So would you wish, uh, uh, welcome Josh Falk to the platform. Thank you. Awesome. All right. Well, Josh, thank you, first of all, for doing this. And uh, let's just kind of jump in and um, just talk about your own prayer life just from a very practical basis. Like, what is it? What does it look like on a daily basis, a weekly basis, however it is that you organize it? Yeah, for sure. Good morning, everybody. Good to see you. Um, I am a morning person, um, <laughs> so I'm in bed by 9 on a good day and getting up at 4.30, 5 a.m., and I'm also very systematic and structured, so I like a plan and execute that plan early in the morning, okay? <laughs> and so, um, yeah, so kind of what it looks like, I got a few different components, so uh, first I... I wake up and I start my time with God. It's just being silent and still before him and quiet prayer. And, uh, you know, when I wake up, I've, I can often, like, feel the weight of the day, like, just immediately be there. And, um, you know, it's just, like, just before going to God, uh, before him and, and digging into his word, it's just, like, releasing whatever it is that I'm carrying into that. And then, uh, you know, reading through uh, some, some scripture. So right now I'm reading through Luke and... You can look up a plan to read through Luke in a day or in a year or whatever at different, you know, increments. And so 
reading through a portion of Luke, and then we also have a, a reader that goes with the sermon series. We have a praying through the Psalms that yeah. our incredible teams put together. And so, um, you know, having that kind of with that. And then journaling for me, I, I picked that up uh, over the years, uh, just being around amazing followers of Jesus and learning. And uh, journaling is just an incredible way for me to reflect personally and to write down prayers and all that kind of stuff. So then I'll do that, and then I will have, like, close the time in a portion of prayer, and I have three components. You guys follow me? You guys are like, what is this guy? <laughs> um, and so, first of all, it's like me and God, like, just praying for myself, surrendering to him, giving thanks to him, and those are often, that's kind of a, a part that's about me, and then I also include a part that's, like, praying for others. And so, uh, there's an app called Prayer Mate. And I was looking for a systematic way of like, how do I keep track of, you know, people I want to be praying for and all this stuff. And so um, this app will like systematically, like you open it up and it's like, here's the people to pray for today. Like, you know, you put in, you're kind of logging as the day goes on, like people want to pray for, and then it will kind of populate, you know, a list for you every morning. So do that. And then just praying for the world and, and seeing God's kingdom advance. And there's some cool ways in that app that it helps you pray through that. So that's kind of the morning thing. And that could be, 10 minutes to 40 minutes, and, you know, I don't always get through all parts of that. Like, I went through that fully twice this past week and then different portions depending on time and whatever. I adjusted that, so, yeah. Yeah, and you're a pretty systematic person just kind of in general. Yeah. And so the fact that there is kind of a system in terms of your prayer life kind of makes sense because of, of how God is wired, yeah. how God has <laughs> wired you. Yeah. Makes sense to me, yeah. yeah. How many 4.30 in the morning people do we have? <laughs> All right, yes. praise the Lord. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Caleb, you're lying. I know you're lying, so <laughs> awesome. Oh, uh, so Josh, talk a little bit about how your prayer life maybe has changed over the years as you've matured, as you've grown in your faith, um, seasons of life kind of thing? How, how has it changed? Yeah, for sure. Um, so, you know, the amount of time will vary depending on the season, but it's always been the morning for me, except when I was growing up, uh, my parents always pray with me at night. Like, that was the first huh. thing. You know, it's like we're praying at night before I go to bed. And, and then I got older, and I'm getting up really early for high school, and I'm like, I'm so tired. I, you know, so, and I was kind of figuring out my faith myself. But then uh, later in high school and in college, I picked up the Bible in one year. Oh, yeah. yeah. So it just breaks it down like, you know, I don't have to think about it. I open up to the date, and I started reading through that. And then just as I've, you know, journeyed through life, and, and I've just kind of learned things over time that I feel like have enriched my time with God. And, like, one of them is it, 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 it's not just about talking to God. It's about also listening to God. You know, yeah. like, as yeah. you spend time in his word and just being still before him and knowing that you are enough, like, no yeah. matter what. Like, you don't have to do anything. And, like, um, that has been something that has been transformative for me. And then also, like, uh, I'm kind of, like, the person that really likes things to be exact and accurate and uh, perfectionist, kind of. And so if I'd miss a time, like, to spend with God, I'd miss it. I'd, whatever, I didn't do it. I'd feel so guilty about that. And then I would carry that with me. And I'd be like, well, I'm... I'm terrible. I want to even try, you know, or whatever. Huh, huh. And I think that um, knowing that, like, God's abundant grace, mm -hmm. like, covers anything like that, mm -hmm. you know, and that the time with God and, and trying to implement in their lives is not about being guilty about not doing it how much you think it's supposed to be done. It's just about, like, um, you know, growing in that and taking next steps and, and coming before God no matter how you feel, no matter what. And so, 
Um, those are just some things over the years yeah. that I feel like the time hasn't, you know, uh, the 10 minutes or the 20 minutes or the 30 minutes that like it's deeper now because of my experiences and what I've learned about God than maybe it was 10 years ago. Right, so, right. Yeah. Now, all of us at times struggle with our prayer life. Um, maybe we struggle because of uh, not sensing God responding in some way or we struggle with the time thing because of different seasons of life even that we go through. Where where have you struggled in terms of just just prayer, just walking yeah. this stuff out? Um, yeah, so I've struggled uh, distractions. I get distracted. Um, consistency. Uh, that's always something. Depending on the season, it's like I need to be more consistent at this, you know. And then um, another another one that I'll just touch on is like uh, you know surrendering my will to God's will and like. Um, you know, I come, something that stuck with me that N.T. Wright, I read about that. I don't know what book it was in, but N.T. Wright talks about prayer being like, we're in a boat and when we're praying to God, we're casting like a rope ashore and we're pulling the rope. We're, we're getting closer to God, right? We're aligning our will with God's, but sometimes, uh, I don't want to do that. I want to align God with my will. And so it's like trying to pull the island closer to where the boat is, like where I, you know, and it's like, it sounds crazy. And um, it's just about surrendering to God. And that's hard. Like, you know, I have dreams and things that I want to be fulfilled and my timing and the way that I want. And so, yeah, that's a dying to yourself that happens. And prayer is huge in that. So, And what impact just has prayer had on your life? We have folks that are probably at all different places as it relates to their prayer life. And one of the questions is, well, how does this, like, how does this, what, is, what difference does this make? Like, how does this impact my life? What, what, yeah. what about you? How has it impacted you? Yeah, it's, it's absolutely life-changing. And, you know, we talk about when Jesus says, like, it, it's a daily decision to follow Jesus. You know, he's like, pick up your cross and follow me. And that's a daily decision that we're called to make. And prayer is like the lifeblood of like staying centered in God, yeah. abiding in his love and his truth, you know. And so like when I do that in the morning, it, it just changes. It gives you like a different lens and you just see everything. You see the things that you're worried about differently. You see the, 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 the pain. You, you're reminded of how good God is and the things to be grateful for. And you're able to love people better. I'm more patient. I'm a better huh, listener. Huh. You know what I mean? Like, it just practically gives you an awareness of, of God and who I am and who he is in yeah. every moment of, of the day. Uh, so it's, it's incredible. Yeah. Josh, thanks so much for doing this. Would you show your appreciation to Josh? I think it's just so helpful um, to just see how prayer gets lived out in people's lives. And like I was saying with Josh, we're all different. We're all wired different. We all have different personalities. We all function different. Some of us are morning people. Some of us are night people. Some of us are real structured. Some of us are not. But I think when we get down to kind of what people are actually doing, it helps us to take this out of just kind of the mystical realm and say, okay, this is something that I can walk out in some way in my life. And we really, we really believe that. So for this series, uh, we're hanging out in the book of Psalms. I mentioned that last week. And uh, as I said last week, uh, Psalms was Israel's, it was Israel's prayer book. It, it, was the, it was the gift that God gave to Israel to help Israel to deal with the challenges and the difficulties and the hardships of life and to deepen their relationship with him. 
And specifically, we're looking at three of my favorite psalms. But uh, I say there are three of my favorite psalms, um, but there are three of my favorite psalms for three very, very different reasons, because they are three very, very different psalms. Uh, one, we're looking at Psalm 103. That's what we looked at last week, a prayer of praise and thanksgiving. And then next week, we're looking at Psalm 51, which is a prayer of confession and forgiveness. And then this week, we're looking at Psalm 88, which is a prayer of lament and a prayer of confusion. And I want to just begin by asking you a question. I think I know the answer to the question, but how many of you have ever felt like God, you don't need to raise your hands or anything, this is not like, you don't have to indicate. I just, just as you think about this, how many of you have ever felt like God was not listening to your prayers? That you, you prayed and you prayed and you prayed and you prayed and it just didn't seem like you were getting any response or the response that you prayed for, the thing that you prayed for, the thing that you wanted to see God do. Nothing seems to change. And, and if that's you, and that's probably an experience that you've had, it's certainly an experience that I had, you are not alone. We are not alone. The Psalms are filled with prayers like that. Prayers where people are in despair or in pain or they're confused and they're asking God for help and there is no response, that they can see at least, that there's, there's no change that seems to happen. And sometimes, those are called prayers of lament, and sometimes those prayers of lament end with a note of praise or a note of hope. And so you'll have this lament, and then you get to the end of the prayer, and there is a, a word of praise or there is a, a word of hope. But sometimes the pain and the darkness is so deep that the one praying the prayer can't even muster up a word of praise or a word of hope in the moment. And Psalm 88 is one of those prayers. And I, I want to read, I actually want to read the whole prayer to you at once. And it's 18 verses, a little bit longer uh, section than I would normally read at one time. But I want to read the whole thing because I want you to feel the emotion. I don't want you just to hear the words. I want you to feel the emotion that is in the voice of this, of this psalmist, of this person who is praying, the despair that they're feeling. I want you to identify at some level with what they are going through. So I want to read the whole psalm and just give you a sense of what it is that they feel at this moment. This is what it says. Oh, Lord, the God who saves me. That's the only positive thing he says in the whole prayer is you're the God who saves me. Like, I know you're the God who saves me. I know that, that I believe in you. I know that I can trust you. I know that. I know that you're God who saves me. But day and night, I cry out before you. May my prayer come before you. Turn your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of trouble. My life draws near the grave. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I'm like a man without strength. I'm set apart with the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, who are cut off from your care. You have put me in the lowest pit, in the darkest depths. Your wrath lies heavily upon me. You have overwhelmed me with all of your waves. You've taken from me my closest friends and you've made me repulsive to them. I'm confined. I can't 
escape. I can't get out of this. My eyes are dim with grief. I call to you, O Lord, every day. I spread out my hands to you. Do you show your wonders to the dead? Do those who are dead rise up and praise you? How can I praise you if I feel like I am dead inside? Is your love declared in the grave, your faithfulness in destruction? Are your wonders known in the places of darkness? Are your righteous deeds in the land of oblivion? But I cry to you for help, O Lord, in the morning. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. Why, O Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? From my youth, I have been afflicted and close to death. I've suffered your terrors and I'm in despair. Your wrath has swept over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. All day long, they surround me like a flood. They have completely engulfed me. You have taken my companions and loved ones from me and the darkness is my closest friend. Now, I'm just gonna make a little guess here that you have never sang a worship song based on that psalm. I don't care what church you grew up in. I don't care whether it was a highly liturgical church or charismatic. I, get, I bet you have never sang a worship song based on that song. I bet you've probably never heard a sermon on that psalm. And that's definitely not a psalm that you're going to send a friend to encourage them. Right? I have all these folks who send me these verses, uh, sometimes on a daily basis, to just encourage me. It's absolutely incredible. And just verses to encourage me. And I can't imagine getting a text that said, you have put me in the lowest pit. I cry out for help and you hide your face from me. Darkness is my closest friend. Love you, Rod. Have a great day. <laughs> I can't imagine. It's not the, it's not the kind of psalm that you're going to send a friend to encourage Like, how depressing would that be? In fact, it causes you to wonder, really, why this prayer is even in the Bible. It seems like God would have made sure something like that did not get in. And yet, here it is. Here it is in Scripture. Now, the word darkness is used three times in the Psalms. Verse 6, verse 12 verse 18, and it's a reminder that this is a guy who is surrounded by darkness who's praying this prayer. In this moment, there's not even a sliver of light that is getting through, even a sliver of light that he can see. In fact, in the Hebrew construction of this psalm, the very, very last word of the prayer is darkness. Like the, the prayer ends in darkness. There's this statement of darkness and then Boom, that's it. And the darkness is not just an out there darkness, the, the darkness of circumstances that he's facing. And he's facing some pretty dark circumstances. All of his closest friends and loved ones have been taken for him. We don't know why. We don't know the circumstances. We don't know what has happened. We don't know if it's a tragic accident. We don't know if they got sick. We don't know if they died. We don't know what it is, but they have been taken from him. And he's facing imminent death. And again, we don't know why. We don't know if he's... Dealing with a disease or uh, dealing with an illness or his enemies are after him. Like, we don't know, but we know he's facing imminent death. And we don't know what has caused all of that, but it is completely and totally dark. And it's not just an out there darkness. It's one thing when there's an out there darkness, but inside we're feeling good about our relationship with God. But it's not just an out there darkness. It's also an in here 
darkness. There's a darkness in his soul. He's going through what St. John of the Cross, a 16th century priest and Christian mystic called the dark night of the soul. Maybe you've heard that phrase before. Maybe you've dealt with that. Maybe you're going through that right now, the dark night of the soul. Now, again, it's not that he doesn't believe in God. It's not that he doesn't trust God. We know, again, from verse one, that he, he trusts God as his savior. He believed that God is his savior. It's just that in this moment, he has no sense of God's love and no sense of God's presence. He feels, in fact, like God is punishing him for something. He feels like God is mad at him for something. He feels like God is angry with him for some reason. He keeps praying and praying and praying and praying, and he keeps crying out to God, and nothing changes, and so he feels completely and totally rejected and abandoned by God. And sometimes the same thing happens to us. Like we pray, we pray, we pray and we pray, we cry out to God, we say all the right things, we do all the right things, we walk in obedience, we live the kind of life that we think that we're supposed to live, that God has called us to live. We're faithful, we serve, we give, all of those things. And then we pray for something that we really, really care about and nothing changes. And the darkness of our circumstances, like the psalmist here, creates a darkness in our soul. And we can't see any way that God can redeem this situation. So is there anything we can learn from a prayer like this? Like, is there anything God can teach us from a prayer like this? And the answer is absolutely. God can teach us from anything that he's given us in scripture. And God can teach us from this prayer. Let me just mention three things I think God teaches us from this prayer. One is this. I think this prayer teaches us that God's grace is manifested in the darkness. And here's what I mean by that. The psalmist is not holding back anything in this prayer. Like he's not trying to control his temper. He's not trying to control his tongue. He's not trying to control his emotions. In fact, he's kind of like an attorney cross-examining God. He's like cross-examining God. Look again at verses 10 through 12. He says, this is, this is the, the prayer of the prayer addressing God. God, do you show your wonders to the dead? Do those who are dead rise up and praise you? Is your love declared in the grave, your faithfulness in the destruction? Answer the question. Like, answer the question. I'm asking you the question. Like, are your wonders known in the place of darkness or your righteous deeds in the land of oblivion? He's prosecuting God. He's saying, I want to praise you. I want to declare your faithfulness. But how can I praise you while I'm being trampled to the ground? How can I praise you when it feels like you have deserted me? How can I praise you when it feels like you are ignoring my prayers and not responding to my prayers? And when he gets no answer to that, he actually begins to exaggerate his situation. So it's like he takes, he looks at the whole rest of his life through the lens of what he's feeling right now. Look again at verse 15. He says, from my youth, I've been afflicted and close to death. I've suffered your tears and I am in despair. In other words, he's saying, God, you've never been there for me. Like, it's not just right now. It's like, you've never been there for me. You've never cared for me. You've never provided for me. You've never, ever protected me. He does the same thing that we do sometimes. Like, we, sometimes we look 
at what we are going through through the lens, or we look at our whole lives through the lens of what we're going through right now. And we just forget. In those moments, we forget God's faithfulness in the past. We forget the prayers that he's answered. We forget the miraculous things that he's done. We forget all of that. We look at our whole life through the lens of what we are going through like in that moment. Now, at this point, the psalmist is not mincing his words. He is not speaking reverentially to God. He's not speaking respectfully to God. In fact, what he's saying might even be bordering on blasphemy. And then he wraps the whole thing up by saying, darkness is my closest friend. In other words, the darkness God is bringing me more comfort than you are. That the darkness brings me more comfort than you bring me. Now, here's what's amazing about all this. And this is the point that I want to make here, right at the first. In spite of all the harsh things that the psalmist is saying, God does not censor his prayer. In fact, the fact that a prayer like this is even included in Scripture is evidence of God's grace. It's God saying to the psalmist and saying to us, I am your God. I am your God. Not just because you're, you're happy, not just because you put on a happy face, not just because you say the right things or do the right things or behave in the right way or express your emotions in the right way or express the things that you need to say to me in the right Not because of any of that. Like, I'm your God, not because of any of that. I'm your God because I am a God of grace. I love you and nothing you do and nothing you say and nothing your behavior, none of your attitude, whatever, none of that. Or said stupid things or done stupid things that I have experienced God's grace the most. God's grace is manifested in the darkness. Second thing I think this prayer teaches us is that greatness is born in the darkness. And here's what I mean by this. Yes, the psalmist is challenging God and he's expressing his bitterness to God and he's expressing his despondency to God, but he is saying it to God. He is having a conversation with God. He hasn't turned his back on God. He hasn't run away from God. He hasn't stopped praying to God. And that's huge because it means that even in the midst of the darkness, Satan is being defeated. Do you remember what Satan said when he came to God? Some of you remember the story of Job, someone else who was going through a really, really despondent time. And Satan came to God before Job was going through all that. And he, and he said concerning Job, Satan said, Job's only serving you because you are blessing him. Like if the blessing ceases, if the blessings go away, so will Job. Just stop blessing him and he won't be there anymore. He will abandon you. He will turn his back on you. But if you know anything about the story, like that's not what happened. Even though the blessings left, Job did not. He struggled, he questioned, he expressed some pretty crummy theology at times, if you've ever read the book, of Job, but he did not leave. He did not turn his back on God, and neither does the psalmist. Even though he's experiencing a time of darkness, 
He is not willing to turn his back on God. He keeps engaging God. He keeps praying to God. And because of that, Satan loses. See, Satan doesn't win. The enemy doesn't win because we get mad at God. The enemy doesn't win because we have doubts about how God is working or we have doubts about God. The enemy doesn't win because we don't understand God or we can't connect the dots or we can't figure that. Like the enemy doesn't win because of any of that. The enemy wins because when we give up on God, when we stop engaging God, when we stop praying to God, when we stop being in relationship with God, that's when the enemy wins. So don't give up on God. Don't stop praying. Even when there are prayers of lament, even when there are prayers of confusion, even when there are prayers of anger, even when there are prayers of doubt, even when there are prayers of God, I don't understand what you're doing and why this is happening and why I'm going through this and why I'm going through this given the life that I've lived and this person who's lived a pretty crummy life is not going through this. Like, I don't understand all this. It makes me mad. It ticks me off. I don't understand it. Like, don't stop lamenting. Don't stop praying. Don't stop engaging. Don't give up on God. Because when you pray, God wins and the enemy loses. And that's why greatness is born in the darkness. Because it's when we don't give up, even when things look hopeless, that God does something supernatural, supernatural within us. When Don and I were in New Zealand um, just this couple weeks ago, I, I became a little obsessed, okay, I'll just admit it, a little obsessed with uh, finding some of the filming locations of The Lord of the Rings. Like, that became like my side obsession. And uh, now, just to give you some context, there's about 150 filming locations of Lord of the Rings in New Zealand, and some are in the North Island, some are in the South Island. We were only in the South Island. Um, and all of New Zealand looks like the set of Lord of the Rings. So like any picture you take, it looks like, oh, that was from Lord of the Rings because it just looks like that. I mean, just the whole country just looks like that. But I wanted to find like one of the exact spots. And speaking of graciousness, my wife was gracious enough to go along with my obsession. <laughs> and she did not have the same interest that I had, but she was like, okay, let's do this. And uh, so we did some weird things. We um, we didn't actually want to, I didn't really actually want to take the time, and she didn't really want to take the time to kind of like do one of those tours. They still, 20 years later, have like Lord of the Ring tours that you can take that, you know, you get in a Jeep and then you go to all these sites, you know, where they film different things. And I didn't want to take the time to do that. And, and uh, so we did, we, we, were that, we were that couple. I was that guy. So at one point, when we knew we were in the general vicinity, we saw a Jeep that was part of a Lord of the Rings tour company, and we just followed it. <laughs> and we just followed it. And, and when it stopped, we stopped. And, and uh, we stopped a little farther back, you know, like acting like we weren't really, we didn't know what we were doing, you know. And, and like they'd get, out of the, they'd get out of the Jeep, and they'd talk, they'd point, and they'd take pictures. And so we would like take pictures of, what, like we didn't know what we were taking pictures of, and we didn't even know like what, the scene was, or we didn't know any of that, but we got the pictures. Like, that's all we care about. Like, we just took the pictures. And they would take off, and they stop again, and then we would stop. And we would take some more pictures. So we did that, and, uh, and, and, and that was fun. And then, in another location, we talked to a local who was out walking his dog. 
And we asked him, he said, what? He goes, uh, are you looking for something? Like, he had a little smile on his face. Like, because I think foreigners, like, show up, and they're looking for these obscure filming sites, you know. And, uh, and so he saw us kind of looking. He says, can I help you find anything? And we said, oh, we're looking. Yeah, at first, I didn't want to admit it. And I said, oh, no, we're just out for a walk, you know. And, uh, and, uh, and then he said, you're looking for Lord of the Rings stuff, aren't you? And I said, yeah, that's what we're looking for. And so he said, okay, well, I can show you, you know. And so he shows us like a couple of actual filming spots. And one of the spots was this path in the woods where in the movie there are these two rocks on each side of the path. And then there's this tree that goes over the path that's this real uh, definitive picture. Like you, you would know it from the movie. And, and so we went looking for that. Like we had engaged this guy and then he went off walking with his dog. And then, um, and then we went looking for this tree that goes over this path and, and these two rocks and all of this. And we can't find it. And then we see the guy again. He goes, did you find everything? And I said, well, we didn't find everything, but we know we're close. And so we're just taking some pictures and everything. And, and I said, well, we actually, we didn't find like the path where the tree is over the top of the path. He goes, oh, you're right at it. He goes, well, you know, it's been 20 years. And like the tree died. And so the tree's not there anymore. But the rocks are still there. The two rocks are still there. And so, and so we took a picture of me standing on the rock, right? So that's me at that spot standing on the rock. And, and when we got done and we got in the car, we thought, wouldn't it be funny if this guy actually just saw these two foreigners obsessed with this 20-year-old movie and just made this whole thing up? Like, we have no idea, right? Like, how many places in the world are there two rocks on the side of a path? Like, everywhere, you know? And just like, he went home laughing to his wife, got another one, got another one. <laughs> Guy stood there, he took his picture. His wife, like, took his picture. They took all kinds of pictures at the rocks, like these two rocks that mean nothing. It's just like, oh, it's so great living in New Zealand. Okay, so, now, I couldn't come back from New Zealand and not have a Lord of the Rings quote. And this one connects with this whole idea that greatness is born in the darkness. Uh, and and I, I won't give you the whole context. Uh, if you have familiarity with the movie, you'll kind of know the context. Sam and Frodo are going to the mountain to confront evil, to destroy evil. And, and in the midst of that journey, suddenly Sam realizes that no matter what happens, that they are most certainly going to die. And the thought that comes to him in that moment is that they should just give up. They should turn back and head back home. But they don't. And in the book, it doesn't say it like this in the movie, but in the book it says, but even as hope died in Sam, or seemed to die, it was turned to a new strength. Sam's plain hobbit face grew stern, almost grim, as the will hardened in him and he felt through all of his limbs a thrill. As if he was turning into some creature of stone and steel that neither despair nor weariness nor endless barren miles could subdue. It was in the darkness that Sam became great.
And the same is true for us. It's when we are in the midst of the darkness and we don't give up and we don't turn our back on God and we don't stop praying that God does this supernatural work through his spirit within us and greatness is born because greatness is born in the darkness. And then the last thing is this. I think this prayer teaches us that God will redeem the darkness. When you're in the darkness, it feels, it feels absolute. It feels total and, and, and permanent. And that was certainly true for the psalmist. In, in that moment, he felt like God had totally and completely abandoned him. He felt like the darkness was absolute. He felt like the darkness was permanent. He felt like there was nothing good that could ever come out of this darkness. But he was wrong. Now, many of the Psalms have titles at the beginning of the Psalm. Before you get to verse 1, and it's in the text. And not every Psalm has this, but some have this, where it's a title. And it's a title of like who wrote the Psalm. Because not all the Psalms are written by David some different psalms are written by different people and it says here's who wrote the psalm or like here's the purpose of this psalm or here's the focus of this psalm or uh, instructions maybe to the choir about how this is to be sung or whatever. But there's like this introduction that gives this information. And um, Psalm 88 is one of those that has an introduction. And the title... Um, the title of this psalm is A Psalm of the Sons of Korah, A Maskil of Heman, the Ezraite. So this is a psalm that was written by a guy named Heman. And we know from 1 Chronicles 6 that Heman was the head of a family called the Kohathites. And they were creatives. They were musicians. They were poets. They were artists who wrote a number of the Psalms that we have in Scripture, which means that Heman produced some of the greatest poetry in the history of the world, poems that people are discussing and studying and have been influenced by thousands of years later, poems that have impacted millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of people, including this poem, this Psalm, 88. Now, do you think that when Heman was going through all of the stuff that he was going through, that he ever thought in his wildest dreams that his poem, that his psalm, that his art would have that kind of impact? Do you think that he had any idea when he was going through all of that, that God was going to use his creative efforts, including Psalm 88, including this psalm, to make a difference in the world? No way. To Heman, in that moment, his darkness felt absolute. He felt like God had completely and totally abandoned him. He felt like God had no purpose anymore for his life. He was convinced there was absolutely nothing good that could come out of this, but he was wrong. God redeemed Heman's season of darkness. Why? Because God can redeem anything. And God can redeem anyone. And that's why there's an answer to the sarcastic question that Heman asked in verse 10. You know, he, 
He asked this question. We read it before, but it's filled with sarcasm. And the question he asks is this, do you show your wonders to the dead? And, and what he's implying is, no, you don't show your wonders to the dead. And, and what good is it going to do if I go to the pit when I can't praise you? Do you show your wonders to the dead? Do those who are dead rise up and praise you? And because of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, the answer to that, we know, is yes. See, we know something that Heman didn't know as he was writing this psalm. We know that through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that God conquered the darkness once and for all. That God conquered sin. That God conquered despair. That God conquered hopelessness. That God conquered death once and for all. Like, we know that. So you ask, okay, that's good, that's awesome, but like, what difference does that make right now when I'm in the midst of going through the darkness? It makes all the difference in the world. It changes everything because it means that no matter how total and complete and permanent the darkness you are experiencing may feel right now, it is none of those things. Because of the cross and the resurrection, our darkness is partial and our darkness is temporary. And just like with him and God can redeem it. God can use it. And when you know that, when you truly know that, when you know that down in the, the bottom of your soul, in the fabric of your life, when you really know that, you will not be consumed by the darkness because you know that the darkness will not win. You know that the darkness cannot win. You know that the darkness has not won. You know that the enemy will not win. You know that God has won. Jesus has won. And if you are in Jesus and if you are in Christ, you have won and God will redeem the darkness. He will redeem the darkness. God will redeem the darkness. God, maybe we use different words and maybe we don't express our questions to you the way that Heman expressed his questions to you. And maybe it's not filled with all the same language that his prayer was filled with. But sometimes, Lord, we Sometimes, Lord, we wonder, like we pray and we pray and we pray and it doesn't seem like you're listening and it doesn't seem like you're answering our prayer and, and it feels dark on the outside but it also feels dark on the inside and we feel distant from you. We feel like you have moved. We feel like the island, as Josh was talking about, that the island has moved, but... Lord, we know that that is not true. We know that your grace is made manifest in the darkness. We know that greatness is, because of your spirit, greatness somehow is born in the darkness. We know that you redeem, you redeem. Lord, may we just 
May we, in the midst of all of our questions and doubts and, and wonderments and all of that, Lord, may we just not give up. May we not turn away. May we not turn our back. May the anger that we feel at times and the questions that we feel and the doubt that we feel, may we express them to you. May we feel safe enough because you are a God of grace and you are a God of love. And no matter what we say, no matter what we do, Lord, you are going to love us and you are going to be there for us and you're going to be present in our lives. And Lord, may we hang on to that even in the midst of the darkness. In the name of Jesus, the one who ultimately brings life, we pray. And everyone said, Amen.